0: Well, I don't know how I'm supposed to preach after crying like that. That's a, that's a phrase I think a lot of when I come up and preach is, if I ever needed you, um, I need you now. Uh, it's a humbling thing to be up here, but it's a great, great deal. Good morning. Good morning. Good um, morning. I was spending some time at Starbucks this week, I was drinking some coffee and working through 1 Corinthians because I had class this weekend for seminary and we were going through 1 Corinthians and I came across a verse that I thought was really pertinent for our study in God's Word this morning and really for the entire book of James. Because if you've been here the last couple of months, then you know some things to certainly be true. And one of those is that the book of James is really difficult, isn't it? It's a very convicting book. James lays out a very high calling for us as believers. And he challenges us to be Christians who live like Christians. And so when I was in Corinthians chapter 4, Paul has just gotten done really getting on the Corinthians. He's been chastising them because of their disunity and their carnal behavior. And he gets to verse 14 and he says these words. It says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul says, guys, I'm not trying to beat you down. I'm not trying to shame you. As a matter of fact, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to correct you. I'm trying to bring you to a place of conviction and repentance. And you know why, guys? It's because I love you. I love you. Similar to what we see in Proverbs 3, verse 12, where it says, For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. Because conviction and discipline are not bad things unto themselves. They're not bad. For one thing, they show that God loves us. That He's willing to conform us. Secondly, it shows that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Convicting us. Bringing us to repentance. And thirdly, these are some of the tools that God uses to ultimately bring us to a place of spiritual maturity. So as beloved children, let's work through this passage this morning and and the entire book of James with this mindset. That these are not just words to convict, but they're words that bring life. And they should be received that way. And gratitude for the God who not only created us and redeemed us, but loves us too much to leave us where we're at. And so with that, let's go to James chapter 3. We'll be in verses 13 through 18. James writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you recall last week, James in verses 1-12 through of chapter 3 talked to us about the need for us to control our tongue. And this morning, we transition to verses 13 through 18, where James comes to us and says, now it's time to control your mind. And in doing so, James describes two very different types of wisdom. One wisdom he describes is found in verse 15, and it's described as earthly, natural, and demonic. The other wisdom, which he describes in verse 17, is a wisdom that comes from above. So two types of wisdom, one that is earthly, one that is heavenly, one that is ultimately false and one that is ultimately true. One that finds its origin in the demons and one that finds its source in God. And James begins verse 13 with a question. He asks, who among you is wise and understanding? I want you to imagine for a second, James is actually behind this pulpit. He was a senior pastor at the Church of Jerusalem there in the 40s. And he looks out, he looks out at you, and he says, hey, who of you are wise? Which one of you are wise? Kind of silence falls over the crowd. People kind of looking around. A couple of hands sheepishly go up. And James says, you, right there. Yeah, you. He says, prove it. Prove it. Prove that you are wise. Now, let me ask you a question How does one prove that they are wise? What is the test for true wisdom? Is it knowledge? Is it success? Is it money? Is it acclaim? Is it age? Is it the amount of Bible knowledge that you have? How would you have answered that? Well, fortunately for us, James tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how one proves that they are wise. He writes, let him show by his good behavior, his good deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. The NIV translates it as, let them show it by their good life. Let them show it. And this is key. This is foundational for understanding the entire passage this morning. Is that God, through the pen of James, tells us that true wisdom, true wisdom, is displayed not primarily by what one knows, but rather by what one does. As one commentator wrote, wisdom is not measured by degrees, but by deeds. Is not a matter of acquiring truth in lectures, but of applying truth to life. Now, don't take this too far. James is not saying it doesn't matter what you know. Knowledge absolutely has a place. But what he is saying is what you know does not matter if it does not transform your life. It becomes empty knowledge. So one can know a lot of Scripture and not be wise. There are plenty of Bible scholars who know the Bible and do not believe it. And do not live it out. If you recall, I preached a few weeks ago on on John 1. And during that sermon, one of the things I said was as I read Scripture, I see two things that God really requires of us. Two responsibilities we have as believers. And that is to believe correctly and behave correctly. God tells us to believe correctly and behave correctly. Doctrine and devotion. Understanding and obedience. And these two responsibilities work hand in hand to produce true wisdom. Because the truly wise person says, I want to know God personally. And I want to know what God has revealed in his word. Because I want to live a life that is pleasing to him. And a life that is pleasing to God is one that is in line with him, one that agrees with God on how he views the world. One of my favorite people in history is Abraham Lincoln. And during the course of the Civil War, this journalist came up to Lincoln and said, Mr. Lincoln, President Lincoln, can I ask you a question? He goes, do you think God is on your side? Do you think God is on your side in the conflict? And Lincoln's response was, sir, my concern is not whether God is on my side. My concern is whether or not I am on God's side. Because God is always right. What wisdom by Lincoln. What wisdom there. Wisdom is saying, God, what do you think? Getting in line with that and then living that out. That's true wisdom. James goes on to say that not only are we to show our wisdom by good deeds, but we are to do it in a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of humility. The verse says, show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. The word gentleness is is a Greek word that can be translated as gentleness, as meekness, as humility depending on your translation and this word speaks to a gentleness of attitude a gentleness of attitude and a belief and understanding that we are not that we are not to be overly impressed with ourselves and note the implication here note the implication you cannot be wise and be harsh You cannot be wise and have a consistent pattern in your life of harshness. And you cannot be wise and be proud. You cannot be wise and be proud. And James is going to come back in chapter 4, which Pastor Roger is going to cover next week, where he's going to say that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now this idea of wisdom being connected to humility is not new. Think of one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible on wisdom. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is linked to humility and is the beginning of wisdom because when we rightly understand who we are or who God is, when we rightly understand to the best of our ability who God is and we understand who we are in comparison to Him, then the only appropriate response is one of humility. It's one of humility. It was Augustine who said, it is pride that changed angels into devils. And it is humility that makes men as angels. And if you stop and think about it, pride before the Creator God is ridiculous. It's just flat out crazy. It's not only destructive, it's insane. It's insane. Now, while verse 13 introduces us to the wisdom of God, which is shown by good deeds and a spirit of gentleness and humility, verse 14 introduces us to a false wisdom that comes from the world, which is a wisdom governed by a much different set of standards. Verse 14 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So this is a different type of wisdom than the one we just read about. This is a wisdom that exists in opposition to God and is characterized, is marked by bitterness, jealousy, and selfish ambition. It is a wisdom that is self-serving and self-seeking. And James tells these individuals who have started to live according to To this false wisdom of the world. He says, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Now why does he say that? What's his point? What does he mean? What James is saying is that if you live a lifestyle. That is in opposition to the wisdom of God. If you live a lifestyle that is defined, that is marked by bitterness and jealousy and selfish ambition, then do not claim to be wise. Do not claim to be wise. Because when you do, you lie against the truth. You are claiming to be wise, but your life is revealing something completely different. And because of that, you not only lie against the truth, but here's the thing, you can even damage the truth. You can damage the truth. You can give truth a bad name. You can give wisdom a bad name because you claim wisdom and then people associate it with you. My wife and I are part of a uh, small group here at Wayside with some folks that we love and we're going through a, a series by Chip Ingram on Romans chapter 12. And during one of the talks, Ingram said something that really impacted me. It really stuck with me. And he said, My life my ministry my whole goal is to help christians live like christians says that's what i want to do i want to help christians live like christians that's really the book of james the book of james is saying hey you're a christian live like it live like it and we might say now how else would we live i mean of course christians are going to live like christians right But we know better than that, don't we? We know better than that in our own lives. Because unfortunately, many Christians spend much of their life living according to the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of God. And in doing so, they lie against the truth and they can even damage it. Because they say one thing and people see something completely different. I mean, think of your non Christian friends or your agnostic or atheist friends when a major Christian pastor or Christian leader is exposed of tremendous moral failures. What do they say? You see? They're not different. They're just a bunch of sanctimonious hypocrites, they're just a bunch of fakers. All bark, no bite. And friends, that begs the question of each one of us here. What about us? Do we claim something that our life is failing to back up? Do we claim to have the wisdom of God, but live according to the wisdom of the world? Are we Christians living like Christians or are we Christians masquerading around like pagans? And these are difficult questions and extremely convicting. And yet we all, each one of us, must take a long look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves and say, ask, who am I living for? And how am I doing? Who am I living for? And how am I doing? All the while, at the very same time, holding tight to the precious truth that we are sinners saved by grace and grace alone. Period. We cannot lose sight of that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I think you've probably heard it up here once or twice. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is a gift. It is a gracious gift. It is unmerited favor from God to us. And we can never forget that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet, we must also never forget that we who are saved... Have been set apart. We have been set apart to live out a life of righteousness that declares the power and the glory and the character and reveals the wisdom of God in our lives. I love the words of Titus chapter 2 and verses 12 through 14. It really hits this point. Paul writes that, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Live out your faith. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, knowing that He is going to return. He's going to appear. should motivate us. Verse 14, who gave Himself for us to redeem us. From every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We are saved by grace, set apart for works, and when we live a life that is contrary to the wisdom of God, and yet claim to have it, we lie against the truth, and we can even do damage against it. After James describes the substance of this false wisdom, he then goes on in verse 15 and describes the source, the source of this false wisdom. Let's look at it. James writes, This wisdom, this one, is not that which comes from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. Earthly, natural, demonic. James begins by saying that this false wisdom is earthly. It is the opposite of heavenly. God's wisdom comes from above. Man's wisdom comes from below. It is confined to the earth. And not only is it earthly, but false wisdom is also natural. This is a Greek word that can be translated as natural or unspiritual. And the idea here is that false wisdom does not include... It does not incorporate, it does not understand, it cannot integrate spiritual truth. It cannot do so, and nor can people who live strictly by that wisdom understand the truth of God. Look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter two, verses 12. Excuse, chapter two, verse 12. Paul writes, "Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God." so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So in other words, the Spirit of God is necessary for spiritual understanding. That doesn't mean everything we think Is right. That doesn't mean every leading we have is automatically infallible from the Spirit. But what it does mean is that we can understand the truths of God because resident inside of us is the Spirit of God. And this is directly opposed to the guy he's going to talk about in verse 14, which is the natural man. Look what he says in verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of God. The things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man. The one who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Cannot receive and understand the things of God. Because he lacks the Spirit of God. His wisdom remains earthly. Natural. Natural. And therefore, unspiritual. Why is this important? What are the the implications of this? Well, for one, do not be surprised when people think that you're nuts. Don't be surprised when you go to work and people go, You believe what? You think he did, huh? Don't be surprised when you go to school and people think you're a little bit strange. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. It's nothing new. Paul wrote, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. <laughs> foolishness. Stupidity. Unsophisticated. Not worthy. The world we live in operates according to human wisdom, which is natural. And it looks at Christians... And it cannot fathom why we believe what we believe. They think we've lost our minds. But the Word of God tells us that for us to have the wisdom of God, we must have the Spirit of God. And for us to have the Spirit of God, we must come to faith in the Son of God. That's the way it works. So keep this truth in mind as you seek to engage the natural man at work, your friends at school, Your neighbors keep this truth in mind. While intellectual arguments, apologetics, while intellectual arguments for the reality of God and the truths of the gospel are extremely important and they are worthy of being pursued, make no mistake that the greatest apologetic you or I could ever give is a life of godliness, is a transformed life of godliness. Do not underestimate God's ability to use your life as evidence of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, false wisdom is from earth and thus confined to earth. It is natural and thus unspiritual. And lastly, as these get progressively more intense, it is demonic. It is demonic. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And it speaks to the fact that the ultimate source of false wisdom, the ultimate architect, the one pulling the strings strings behind the curtain, is none other than Satan and his demons. They're in charge of the false wisdom of the world. And it is a matrix they have created that is designed to lead us to destruction. So in sum, false wisdom is earthly. It's natural. It's demonic each one being in direct opposition to the true wisdom that comes from above, which is heavenly in nature, spiritual in essence, and divine in origin. After describing the substance and the source of false wisdom, verse 16, James speaks to the side effects. What are the side effects of false wisdom? What do they result in? Verse 16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There is disorder in every evil thing. Guys, think of all the disorder, all the evil, all the sin that is birthed from jealousy and selfish ambition. How about the first sin ever when Satan rebels? Wanted God's glory, wanted God's throne. He rebels. Selfish ambition. What about the first sin ever for mankind in the garden where Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent and they become jealous because they can't eat from one tree and they fall. Think about the disorder and evil that takes place in each one of our lives because of our propensity to compare ourselves to those beside us, those behind us, and those in front of us. Just think of the disorder and evil that comes from wanting someone else's paycheck. Wanting someone else's home. Wanting someone else's spouse. Wanting someone else's Facebook page. Wanting someone else's life. When selfish ambition and jealousy direct our words and guide our actions... All we are left with is disorder and every evil thing. That is the price that we pay for living according to the wisdom of the world. Now starting in verse 17 and finishing in verse 18, James now returns to describing true wisdom. True wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above. And this is a wisdom that is very different in terms of source, substance, and side effects. Verse 17, he writes, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. James says that this wisdom that comes from above, it comes from God. He tells us that all the way back in chapter 1, verse 5, if you recall. When he said, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. And as we ask for wisdom and we receive it from God, notice what comes first. Purity. Purity. The wisdom from above is first pure. The word emphasizes moral blamelessness. Notice that purity even comes before what? Peace. Purity before peace. This is why Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, be at peace with all men. We are to seek peace, but never at the expense of purity. You could preach an entire sermon on that. But I want to take a minute, because of time, and focus on two ideas. And that is purity of belief and purity of behavior. Purity of belief and purity of behavior. Now in regards to purity of belief or purity of doctrine, this is why no matter what culture does, no matter what other churches do, no matter what entire denominations do, we can never compromise the core doctrines of Christianity. We can never compromise the core doctrines that make up orthodox belief. Doctrines like God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. We are Trinitarians. The fact that we believe God on high took on flesh and walked among us. As as John said, the Word was made flesh. We believe in what's called the Incarnation. We believe that Jesus Christ did not spiritually rise from the dead, therefore to give us a path to high morality, but He physically rose from the dead on the third day and as the first fruits of what's to come as we as believers rise from the dead and are with Christ in our glorified state. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We believe in the inerrancy, inspiration, and authority of the Bible as the Word of God. These are non-negotiable Christian doctrines where we will not budge because purity must come before peace. But, and I got it underlined and bolded in my notes, that being said, we must choose our battles wisely because not every issue is worth breaking fellowship over and not every issue is worth splitting a church over. There are definitely areas of theology and areas of worship and areas of life where good, Bible-loving, God-fearing believers disagree. Trust me, I read about them all the time in seminary. All the time. Now, this doesn't mean we can't have strong opinions on things like the end times, eschatology like uh, the age of the earth, like the Christian's role in the public sphere, like spiritual gifts. Trust me, I have strong opinions. You can come ask my wife after the service. (laughs) The key, though, is that we don't mistake purity and call it preference. That we don't mistake purity for preference because those are totally different. We can't have an opinion and automatically claim that is orthodoxy. We cannot do that, because purity of doctrine is paramount, but preferences and opinions are often intertwined with pride, and we must be cognizant of that and humble in light of that. Now, secondly, in regards to the purity of behavior, there's another tension. This time, it's not between opinion and orthodoxy. This time, it's between total separation and total integration. Because we are called to live a life of purity, but what does that mean practically? What does that mean practically? What does that mean for our relationship to the world? To culture? To unbelievers we come into contact with? Is it one of total separation? Or is it one of total integration? I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to this. Fascinating. He writes, I wrote you in my letter, a previous letter, Not to associate with immoral people. And so we go, okay, great. We go to church. We're moral. Therefore, buffer zone. No immoral people. Stay out of my sphere. And we go start a Christian commune or something. Unfortunately, verse 10 comes right after that. Unfortunately, if that's your thought process. (laughs) Verse 10 says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters for then you'd have to go out of the world <laughs> but actually i wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one do you hear what paul is saying here in one sense, as we read from the book of Titus earlier, we are to be pure and set apart, from, set apart by God, and as we live out our righteousness, we are naturally going to be separated from certain things. We are naturally going to stand out, we are naturally going to be distinctive, and yet, on the other hand, we are also encouraged to not only we're not, we are encouraged to engage the lost, to engage our culture, not to run away from it not to run away from it. And ultimately I think the key to understanding this, the key to understanding the purpose of purity is this. Is that purity of life, purity of behavior is not designed to elicit total separation, nor is it designed to bring us into total integration, but rather a life marked by purity is designed for proclamation. For proclamation As we proclaim the gospel with our life and with our lips. It's not meant to separate us from everybody. It's not meant to make us look like everybody. It's meant to give us a platform to stand on and proclaim God. And the power of God by the purity of our life. These are the one, excuse me. So James says that godly wisdom is first pure and then peaceable gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. These are the wonderful results, verse 17, of a life lived according to the wisdom of God. You may notice that it sounds very similar to Galatians 5, where Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit. And that makes sense, because for us to live according to the wisdom of God, we must be empowered by the Spirit of God. And also notice that no one has ever fulfilled these to a greater degree than our perfect Savior Jesus Christ. No one has ever been more pure. No one has ever brought more peace. No one has ever exuded more mercy. No one has ever been so unwavering as he willingly goes to the cross. This is why one of Christ's titles in Scripture is that he is the wisdom of God. Christ is wisdom incarnate. James closes this wonderful section of Scripture by reiterating the importance of peace and the intimate connection it has to wisdom. Verse 18, he writes, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And the point James is making here is that those who possess the wisdom from above and those who live out this wisdom from above are naturally going to be peacemakers. People who are wise are peacemakers. It's one of the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And we as peacemakers, living by the wisdom of God, are to sow peaceable deeds. We are to sow peaceable deeds, knowing that the re- it's going to reap a harvest of righteousness going to reap a harvest of righteousness. We will reap what we sow. So sow deeds in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Think of it this way. Righteousness will only grow in a climate of peace. Righteousness will only grow in a climate of peace. And the only way you and I can have a peace where righteousness can grow is when we come to faith in the prince of peace. The Prince of Peace. The one who was full of righteousness. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus brought peace where there was enmity. He reconciled us through the blood on the cross. And because of the blood of the the cross, because of the blood of Christ, we who are sinners can now have peace with God. We who are sinners, we who are unable to live a righteous life because of our sinful state, can have the righteousness of God given to us when we believe by faith in who He says that He is. And our sins will be forgiven. Now I want to close this morning by asking two questions. Two questions as we walk out these doors. Number one, do you know the wisdom of God? Do you know the wisdom of God? Think back to the words we read just a few minutes ago from, from Corinthians one twenty three. It says, For we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. But you know what he says on the very next verse? But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. Do you know the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ, wisdom incarnate? Do you know him as your Lord and as your Savior? If not, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move in you right now in a mighty way and bring you to a place of repentance and faith and the one who gave everything for you. I pray that that would happen. For the rest of us here who have believed, God's word is clear that our salvation is secure. Romans 8, John 10 John 5, Jesus says, you believe in me, you have passed from death into life. Your salvation is secured. And the question I have for all of us this morning is how are you living? How are you living? James knows we're not going to be perfect. James knows we're not going to achieve sinlessness. Sinlessness. In the present era. He told us that last week as we looked at when he said, For we all stumble in many ways. James knows that. We all stumble in many ways. We all sin. We get that. But we who are Christians, though prone to wander and prone to leave the God we love, are called to live lives that reflect the wisdom of God as we are led by the indwelling Spirit of God that is continually working to conform us to the image of God, as we respond in obedience to the incomprehensible love of God and declare to the world the amazing power of the gospel unto the glory of God. And friends, if we do that, we will show ourselves to be men and women Of tremendous wisdom. Let's pray. Lord God, I come before you and we just confess that we fall so short, that we all stumble in many ways. And yet, God, you and your grace have saved us. God, I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would come to a full understanding of the fact that they are a sinner. We are all sinners. And because of that, we are separated from you, but you and your great love and your great grace condescended, took on flesh as the God-man, Jesus Christ, willingly going to the cross, dying in our place, taking on our sin. God, that you were buried and three days you physically rose again showing that you had conquered death and that you are worthy of our faith and worthy of our praise and that everything you said is true. And that if we believe in you, your life, death, resurrection, God, that we will have eternal life and our sins will be forgiven. What glorious news. And God, for those of us who are struggling, for those of us who are not living out our faith well, for those of us who claim the wisdom of God but live according to the wisdom of the world, convict us, align us to your will. God, that we may be used in a mighty way with a purity of belief and a purity of behavior that impacts and changes not only our world, but the world to come in eternity. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your great mercy and love. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.